All right. I want to say uh, welcome, if you're here for the first time, uh, Beaver fans. <laughs> it is good of you to fulfill what you prayed about uh, near the end of that game. <laughs> uh, it is a, uh, uh, we're in the, in the middle of this series right now, this week and next week or our last week, uh, talking about what it is to be a disciple and make disciples. The very end of um, the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospels are these four books in the Bible that tell the story of Jesus' life while he was here on earth. And the very end, Jesus tells his disciples, and these are like the last paragraph, says, uh, go into all the world and make disciples. And uh, that making disciples is the command to Christians. Uh, when people say, what do Christians do? The answer should be, uh, make disciples. And a disciple is a person who follows the life and the teachings and implements them in their own life of a master, or in Jesus' time and, and space, it would be called a rabbi. And so for Christians, Jesus is culturally our rabbi. And we look at him, look at the way that he lived and the things that he taught, and that informs us. But making other disciples is part of that challenge. And I don't know about you, but if, if you sat down and said, how many disciples have I made? Or how many disciples am I making? It's kind of an awkward thing because you're like, I don't even know what that means or how to do that or, or how to do those things. And, and making disciples involves this kind of helping someone else do the things that I'm doing or be the person that I'm being as people are beginning to follow Jesus. Uh, and those kind of relationships that happen are really the context for all of disciple-making, uh, for all of being and making other disciples. It's really difficult to make disciples if you're not being a disciple. And so that being a disciple comes as a precursor or to actually making other disciples. And when we say making other disciples, there's that context or that thought of someone who is not a follower of Jesus, becoming a follower of Jesus. Or someone turning, the Bible puts it, turning from death to life. Uh, biblically, death is existence apart from God, and life is existence in the presence and, of, and power of God. And so this turning, or this repenting, or this changing of other people's lives. If you grew up in church, uh, you might have used the word witnessing. And, and if you did, then you're sweating just me saying that. Uh, if you grew up in church, you might use the word evangelism. Uh, companies now use that word like, I'm an evangelist for my iPhone, or I'm an evangelist for whatever product we're using today. Uh, there's that kind of sharing of the good news of something that I found and I want to tell you about. Now, because I grew up uh, uh, kind of in a Christian context, um, that's an awkward way to say that. I grew up in a Christian context, but I sucked at it. Uh, so uh, I've done things where you go door to door and knock on people's door and you say, I'm doing a survey. I'm not doing a survey. Uh, so it's kind of awkward because I was lying right away. But I, uh, I guess technically I was doing a survey, but I didn't really care about the results because I knew what the answer was going to be. And I'm doing a survey and you ask them questions like, if you were to die tonight, where do you think you would go? And, and there was always something in me, like I was supposed to ask this, and this is how people were going to become Christians, and it's effective. I have friends who become Christians this way, but when I ask that, I'm a large dude, and when I knock on your door and say, if you were to die tonight, where are you going to go? 
that's arrestable, isn't it? Like, uh, it's not like I'm a nice-looking small man, right? Like, I'm a prime candidate for no-fly list, right? And so when I don't shave my green card, and I don't, sh- if you're new here, I'm here on a green card, uh, but uh, I didn't shave that day, and I, I look like I don't belong here, uh, but there is this uh, context to when I knock on someone's door and I say these things, and then I say, if you uh, are standing at the gates and St. Peter is there, why would you say you get in? And, and then I would walk people through, and, and I've actually took a class in Bible college on this, I can get you saved, right now, you can't, I have a counter-argument to every one of your arguments. Like, I win every single time, right? Like, if you're willing to have a 15-minute conversation with me, you're praying at the end, and you're being a Christian, whether you like it or not. Like, it is, I will trick you, manipulate you, argue, beat you into following Jesus. The weird thing is, I don't know how Jesus would feel about that, (laughs) Because I don't see Jesus tricking, manipulating, beating people into becoming his follower. He's much more like, hey, follow me. And if people say no, he goes, you're lost, and keeps walking. Which I'm like, Jesus, that, that's a person, right? But Jesus seemed to have this mission and this context and these relationships that he existed in. And he was moving forward in those and inviting people to follow God and, and, and moving into that. There's kind of two schools of theology mainly in the Western world. Uh, One, um, you don't care about this stuff, but it's called Calvinism, and it believes that people are elect or preordained. So when you do evangelism, define the people that God already chose. And then there's the other camp, which is kind of Wesleyan-Arminianism, which has a much longer name but is not much better, uh, says that God's invited everybody, and so we do evangelism and people can respond to that. So it's kind of a whether you're elect or not elect. At the end of the day, you're screwed if you don't pick Jesus anyway, so your theology doesn't matter much in heaven. Uh, We're in the second camp. I'm in the second camp, but the first camp has some pretty smart people, significantly smarter than me. And and so there's this kind of uh, going out and telling people about Jesus that happens, and Jesus seems to act at times like a Calvinist and at other times like a Wesleyan Arminian. And and interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't pick a theological camp that we've categorized him in. Way to go, Jesus, right? But uh, there is this, um, uh, when Jesus talks about following himself, he always talks about it in the context of being in a relationship with Jesus. And those relationships become the context or the most important part of the process and the life of discipleship. Uh, to be and to make disciples demands relationship. Uh, God himself expresses himself in the Bible, uh, or talks about himself, not just expresses himself, as a trinity. And a trinity is a theological concept. It's the first theological concept that we believe, uh, is that God exists as three, and God exists as one. And so there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in the Bible, But all three of them are one, which forms God. But individually, they are each fully God as well. Uh, It's one of the mysteries of our faith. And if you can explain it, and people try to explain it with an egg or a pizza or an orange, it's unexplainable. It's a mystery. We believe that one and three apparently are the same thing and different at the same time. And you can try that out in math class. If you get something wrong, you'd be like, well, I'm a Trinitarian, sir. 
and it's my religion, and so you can't mark that wrong. We'll see how that goes. But uh, <laughs> it doesn't work. My first degree is in math. It doesn't work. Um, in that trinity, in that relationship that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit have, God is glorified. And when Jesus comes to earth, that trinity doesn't cease to exist. It exists in some kind of strange way because Jesus does, only does the things that God tells him to do and he's in perfect relationship with him. If you imagine when you pray and, and you feel like maybe God's listening or, or you feel like maybe God's speaking to you, uh, when Jesus prayed, he like knew what God sounded like and he was, could be like, remember a couple million years ago because there's no beginning to the existence of God and no ending to the existence of God which is ununderstandable as well. Uh, and, and Jesus just would have conversation. And that relationship is what we're invited into when we decide to be disciples or when we're called and respond to be disciples. I want to read the scripture today and talk about relationships and talk about evangelism because if we're told to make disciples, then it's a command for the followers of Jesus to share the good news, or what the Bible calls the gospel, of this Jesus that you found with other people. And probably your experience of that hasn't been positive. At least some of your experience. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of someone, uh, I have, even as a pastor, been on the receiving end of someone trying to get you saved with a little booklet that has four spiritual laws in it. And lots of people get saved that way but it's kind of an awkward thing for me. And, and then there's other people who they're like knocking on your door and asking you if you're going to die tonight. Uh, and those kind of sharing your faith and being evangelistic, you might be in a job where you're really nervous about talking about your religion or talking about your faith. And so I want to talk about relationships and talk about the way that relationships work in the context of making disciples. I'm going to read this. Uh, and we're going to start with the relationship of marriage, all right? And this is from First Peter. It'll be on the screen. I'm reading it from the message translation because it's kind of, a, it sounds more like a letter and a little more pastoral, uh, but it'll be on the screen for you. So this talks to the wives, but I want to just give you a warning. If you're single, there's truth in here. If you're a husband, you're going to get smacked in paragraph two. So before you turn to your wife and be like, see? You want to just keep that on lock for a little bit because it's going to go bad for you in paragraph two, all right? So, <clears throat> and wives, don't get self-righteous and ignore this, all right? But listen, uh, he, he's talking along, and I'm going to skip chapter two, so the same goes for you wives. You'll just have to catch what that means. You can read chapter two later. But it says, the same goes for you wives. Be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. There are husbands who... Indifferent as they are to any words about God, will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. What matters is not your out outer appearance, the styling of your hair, the jewelry you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition. Cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. The holy women of old were beautiful before God that way. And were good, loyal wives to their husbands. Sarah, for instance, taking care of Abraham, in, starting in Genesis 12, would address him as, my dear husband. And in brackets it'll say, without being sarcastic. 
You'll be true daughters of Sarah if you do the same, unanxious and unintimidated. That daughters of Sarah concept to us means very, very little. But to people who move from the Jewish context to the Christian context, Jewish people in the very early church who became followers of Jesus and were called Christians, being a daughter of Sarah was like the highest praise that you can have. It'd be similar to today, people say things like a Proverbs 31 woman. If you know the end of Proverbs, it talks about uh, a wonderful woman or a wonderful wife and a wonderful mother. Uh, the daughter of Sarah is what you wanted to be. It's what you wanted people to call you and what you wanted to be like because Abraham was the patriarch and Sarah was his wife who called him my dear husband. There is this notion in here where, where wives can have a relationship with their husbands where they're responsive to his needs. What this means is husbands all have needs. As much as they think they're independent or tough or smart or tall or whatever they are, every single human being has a need for someone else to be able to be complementary in their life. And the marriage relationship is set up so that God can improve you. This is true, wives. As much as you shouldn't marry someone if you're single, don't marry somebody who's a fixer-upper, all right? But the problem is they're all fixer-uppers. You just don't want to marry a bad fixer-upper. And, and there is this notion to when we get married, we improve the other person, but not as a project, not as a, I'm going to fix you, but more as a, these are your weaknesses, and I fill those gaps. Does that make sense? Not as a, I'm going to marry you and rescue you and make you better, or you're going to marry me and you're going to rescue me and make me better, but more as I've got some blind spots in my life just because of my personality or my upbringing or my beliefs or my opinions, and having someone who I trust more than anyone point those out to me in a my dear husband loving kind of way makes me better and makes my life better and makes my relationship better. So you'll be daughters of Sarah if you do the same. Not worrying about your outward appearance as much as your inner disposition. Uh, which doesn't mean sweatpants and ponytails is in for Christians, right? All of a sudden the women are like, oh, right? I dropped my kid off of school, I know. But <laughs> where's my baseball cap? <laughs> All right. But when you're thinking about, I mean, think about the amount of time that you spend concerned with, and this isn't just for women, think about the amount of time you spend concerned with your outward reputation. And when God says, oh, that's nice, now what's going on with your inner disposition? When your inner disposition is one that is in harmony and living peacefully with God, then your outward appearance becomes... It matches your inner appearance. When I think about the holiest, most spiritual people in my life, they are the people that I aspire to be, I can't tell you how they dress. Like, I honestly can't, because it's unremarkable, because I don't notice it. And if you think about that, the most spiritual, the most open, most godly people that you know, do you think, I really like their earrings? 
I really like that ponytail, right? You don't think those things because there's something in them that shines brighter than their outward appearance. And then they're able to live, be true daughters of Sarah, unanxious and unintimidated. Tell me you don't want that in your life. Unanxious and unintimidated. Now, husbands. The same goes for you husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honor them. Delight in them. As women, they lack some of your advantages. But in the new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives then as equals so your prayers don't run aground. It's an, inter- it's an interesting comparison because we recognize that there are some weaknesses that women have as well, disadvantages that women have as well. My wife can't reach things on the top shelf. And that's a weakness. And so she can either get a stool or marry a tall guy, right? And who wants to always be moving a stool around? Uh, but there is, uh, there is uh, just like the husbands have needs and have uh, weaknesses, women have disadvantages in our culture uh, and have weaknesses. And the husband is to honor his wife in those and treat her as an equal so that your prayers don't run aground, which is like a a boating reference. And if their boat runs aground, it's bad news and your boat isn't going to work anymore. If you don't treat your wife as equals, your prayers will be ineffective and will basically sink instead of float. Like I know at the beginning I kind of got on the woman from wearing sweatpants and ponytails, but man... If you don't treat your wife well and honor her, your spiritual life is sunk. And I know there's a like, movement in Christianity, and I read this out of this because in the NIV it has this word submit, and everybody starts to vomit when we see the word submit, right? But when we read this, you can't take that word and do crazy things with it. When you read the Scripture... A husband's main role is to honor and lift up his wife. And so the success of you as, your, as a husband is to look at your wife and see, do people look at her and think that she's honored? And the success as a wife is to say, do people look at him and see that he's like respected and, I, and I'm responsive to him and his needs? When I look at the most spiritual godly people, I also notice this in their relationship. And then I think to myself that I want that relationship. I have a lot of friends who don't follow Jesus. And they're married. And then I have a lot of friends who do follow Jesus. And they're married. And I hear them say things about their spouse that doesn't make me want their marriage. I don't aspire to be like them. I don't see myself in their shoes in the future. Instead, I think, I don't want to be with them, like them, so what do they do and how can I do the opposite? And this is basically like how I live my life. I look at who I want to be and I do the same things as them. I do that with Jesus. I do that with people, in pastors, who I want to be like when I get older. I do this with men. I do this with marriages. 
I was going to say I do this with athletes, but that never works out. <laughs> now the athletes I want to be like are much younger than me, and it, the gap is getting wider, as if it wasn't wide enough already. That marriage relationship provides evidence of the work and the grace of God in your life. In a culture that says, live for yourself, make yourself happy, that God would want you to be happy, this scripture actually says, God would want the people that you're in relationship with to be happy. And so God would look at my life and approve of my life if my life is oriented towards the people around me and the person who's closest to me, my spouse, then my kids, then my friends, my coworkers or co-students. Those people, their happiness is the role of the Christian, just like Jesus came to earth, not to be served, but to serve the people who were around him. So, summing up, next verse. Summing up, be agreeable. <laughs> this is easy. Be agreeable. Uh, be sympathetic. Be loving. Uh, <laughs> be compassionate. Be humble. That goes for all of you. No exceptions. No retaliation. No sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead, bless. That's your job. Followers of Jesus, bless. You'll be a blessing, and you'll also get a blessing. Because whoever wants to embrace life and see the day fill up with good, here's what you do. You say nothing evil or hurtful. You snub evil and you cultivate good. You run after peace for all your worth. God looks on this with approval, listening and responding well to what he's asked. But he turns his back on those who do evil things. We start with this relationship of marriage and say, in your marriage, honor and support and love and respect each other. And that will be a gospel marriage. And then we just look at life and say, be compassionate and be sympathetic and be loving and don't be hurtingly sarcastic. It doesn't outlaw all sarcasm. It's just don't be a jerk. <laughs> and then bless people. And that bless people is what I'm talking about. Make other people's lives better. And when you do that, your own life is better. Because if you want to embrace life and fill your day up with good, just don't say things that are evil or hurtful. And snub out evil. And do what is good. And celebrate what is good. There is a, when you start to do these things, it's the most interesting thing to me. Uh, the Bible talks about gossip, right? And gossip being uh, prime evil, like prime like, gossip is compared to the worst evils that you can think of. It's in the same list. And there's people who really love gossip. Like, because it feels good, doesn't it? Like, it feels good knowing something that somebody else doesn't know. And yet when we, and I define gossip as saying negative things about someone who's not there. Uh, that's an easy way if you want to check what is gossip. If somebody's saying negative things about someone who's not there and they're not their boss or their teacher, <laughs> then you don't need to be in that conversation because that's gossip. And if you start to snub out gossip, like I'll hear people say negative things about someone else and be like, well, I just don't talk bad about people who aren't here and walk away, they stop including you in their gossip train. 
It's why if you've been around like small churches that are in a lot of politics, uh, the pastor is always the last one to know and they're like, man, that pastor's out of touch. It's like, well, maybe that pastor doesn't do gossip and everyone else is on the train, all you pagan heathens, and that's why the church is so small, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm just saying, Christians don't do that. The holiest people I know, the godliest people I know, I don't go up to them and say, did you hear about Brad and Angelina? Because they don't care, right? That's, that's a tragic thing too, and I, I'm going to Google search that later so I know all the details. For what? <laughs> do, do you hear what I'm saying? And that's just a stupid one. Uh, but there are real things that happen. You can become a person who other people don't tell things to because they know that you won't give them the satisfaction of engaging in gossip. And that's what it is to snub out evil and to move towards what is good. I've, uh, <laughs> I've like, uh, over this last election that happened, and I'm on social media a lot because I like Olympics. Uh, <laughs> that's why I'm on there. But there's a lot of people who said a lot of things. And there's this hide button. And I hid all these people. And I know there's people who hide and unfriend me because there's a friend of mine who I hadn't heard from in a long time and I searched him the other day. Scott, if you're listening to this. Uh, not Scott here. He lives in Idaho, Boise, Idaho. Scott, some of you are friends with him. But we're not friends anymore. And it's not a big deal. He probably doesn't like the Olympics. Uh, and that's all I post about. Uh, but there is... Uh, I, there was, I had one friend from school who said, it's stupid that all these people are unfriending people because of politics. And I said, I held up my phone to Heather and showed him, and I go, watch this. I unfriended him. And I'm like, there you go. How do you like that? That was funny. <laughs> you know? I blocked, my childhood best friend said something bad about LeBron the night that he won his championship, you know, the last year. I blocked him on Twitter. Uh, Robbie, I'm never going to talk to him again. Uh, but... If there was no Twitter, I never would anyway, so who cares? But there is this, like, I go on to this thing, and there's these people, and I don't even care what people's opinions are. Like, if you say things that are negative or hurtful or, like, biting tongue sarcasm, I don't need that in my life because the Bible tells me the way to have a good life is to go this direction. And so I get rid of that stuff. And I know some people get off the social media and that kind of thing, but I love Olympics, and so I need to stay on. But... Uh, when you're, there is a kind of person who you go up to to tell gossip to and they just stonewall you because they don't understand the joy that you're getting out of that. And those are the kind of people that I want to be like because those people have discovered say nothing evil or hurtful, snub evil and cultivate good, run after peace for all your worth, because God looks at this with approval, listening and responding well to what he's asked, but he turns his back on those who do evil things. The people who do evil things, God literally turns away from. I don't know of anything scarier in the scripture than saying God is turning away from you. And so this is living the peaceful life is a thing that I'm chasing after. The scripture continues, it says, If, with heart and soul, you're doing good, do you think you can be stopped? Even if you suffer for it, you're still better off. Don't give the opposition a second thought. 
through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ your Master. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are and always with the utmost courtesy. Keep in a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. There is this um, notion that we need to yell at people in a megaphone about Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen those people. If you go to cities, they usually get a box, they stand on it. I think there's one that drops by OSU every now and then. And they stand on a thing and they have a megaphone and they yell at people. And maybe God told them to do that. I don't want to judge those people. I don't have time for judging those people. But I never saw Jesus do that. And it wasn't just because he didn't have a megaphone. Jesus would have times when he got thousands of people on a hillside and they would have these natural amphitheaters and he would speak to these people. And I imagine he would yell these things. But the things that he yelled were never, you're all going to hell. The things that he yelled were, this is what it means to be blessed. This is what it means to be good. This is what it means to live a good life after God. All things forward-thinking, not condemning. Which, if you feel like you need to go onto campus and yell through a megaphone, knock yourself out. You're only hurting Jesus. <laughs> but when, like you're hurting Jesus, Jesus is pretty tough, he can take you. If he can take me, he can take you. Uh, but there is this uh, notion that we need to tell people that they're going to hell. But when I talk to most of my friends who are not Christian, they already know that Christians think they're going to hell. Like, I've had friends say to me, so you think I'm going to hell, don't you? And I said, well, you do too, don't you? Which is not in my evangelism textbook, but we found some common ground. We both thought he was going to hell. <laughs> there is this... An, and I know I'm an aggressive person in my conversations, but there is, uh, then there are people who will look at my marriage, who will look at my peaceful life, see that I don't get sucked into evil and sin, and that I chase after good with all I'm worth, and they'll say to me, why are you like that? And they'll look at me and say, I want my life to be like his life. I want whatever it is that he has. And so they'll say to me and they'll ask. They never say, hey, I want your life. They say, hey, this is the thing that's going on in my life. What would you do? Right? It's usually problem-based. What would you do? You have kids that are my kid's age or you've been through this thing or you've been married a long time or you've been a Christian a long time. What would you do in this situation? And this thing is, there's this fun saying that says, uh, share the gospel always, if necessary, use words. It's a stupid saying because it, it's necessary. <laughs> Everybody says St. Francis said that. He also went into court one day, took his clothes off, handed them over, and walked out of court naked, right? Like, don't quote these crazy people, but it's always necessary to use words. You don't know who God is. You don't know who Jesus is if you don't use words. And it's a fun saying, yada, yada, yada. St. Francis, I'm going to see him in heaven. He's the guy walking around with no clothes, right? But uh, <laughs> he's not the only one. But anyways, that's a different sermon. When, 
when we think about sharing the gospel, there's actual words that go along with it. And the requirement of making disciples isn't just live like a disciple and then other people will go to church. It's other people will ask you, be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are. It's not, they don't ask, why do you believe the theology you believe? Or why do you have the opinions you have? Or why do you believe the doctrine that you have? People want the faith of the person who's living the way they are who's living in a way that they want to live. But be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you're living. It doesn't say speak up and give a doctrinal defense of the Trinity. It doesn't say speak up and be able to share the four laws of the four spiritual laws. It says, can you give a reason for why you're living the way you're living? Which is much easier, isn't it? You can say, if someone says to you, hey, why do you live the way you live? My life used to be an unorganized bag of hammers. I found Jesus. Now it's awesome. Y'all don't use that bag of hammers reference, huh? My life used to be the Oregon Ducks defense. Then I found Jesus. (laughs) Now it's awesome. That was so cheap. I set that up on purpose, right? I used a bad reference and then let you do that. All right. My life used to be like this. I found Jesus. This is my life now. I'm sticking with Jesus. I don't understand everything that Jesus says. Some of the things that Jesus says I don't even like. Like when we get to heaven, I'm going to tell Jesus I mostly disagree with this, this, and this. I think it would be better if you change your mind on this. But I'm going to trust that Jesus knows better than me because my life used to be like this and now it's like this because of Jesus in the middle. You see how I didn't mention any theology? I didn't mention like any like doctrine things. It's that I decided to follow the ways and teachings of Jesus. I decided to do what Jesus calls being born again. I repent of my sin. I say to Jesus, this is my life. It's a mess. I want you to take charge of my life. I'm going to read the scripture and do what it says. I'm going to actually like do the things the scripture says. Because me, I'm just messing this up. I'm going to try this, and it seems to be working, so I'm going to keep doing it. In relationship with Jesus, not just like some kind of religious experience, but I actually, we use the words like Jesus uh, became the king and the savior of my life. The Lord, the Bible uses the word Lord and savior of my life. So it's not just like, oh, I like Jesus. It's that I've fully committed to Jesus and it's, it's my only way of living and it's my only attempt at life and I'm going to continue to live this way. So then people will throw mud at you and it won't stick. I talked about social media and here's why, because it's funny. But I have a friend and he's a... Uh, He's, these are Canadian friends from high school, but my friend is a uh, really conservative and loves arguing on Facebook. And I have this other friend who posted something uh, nasty about uh, the Bible and how it's translated and made up by men. Well, I have degrees in this crap, and so I thought I would comment and say, I can appreciate where you're coming from, but if you actually look into Bible translation, there were people who actually were like really committed to that and like put their best effort in and those kinds of things. And I don't think ripping on them is helpful. And, all right, 
it was, it, was, it was a good time. Like when people insult me online, it's pretty awesome. And, uh, and, and I mean that really, like that's not sarcastic. Like I think it's hilarious because I'm like, what is going on? Like I'm so famous. But um, <laughs> I'm famous enough that somebody is typing things in their computer somewhere else because they care about me feeling bad, right? <laughs> but when they're... they're I decided not to defend myself. And, and they were like personal attacks that you're this, you're that. And so, you know, when I was in high school with these people, I was like probably the worst Christian. Like, you think you're the worst Christian? I was owning it, right? Like, it, I was really bad at it. And, and then my conservative friend who loves arguments on Facebook decided to start defending me, and then they started fighting over me. <laughs> and I'm in the back, you know, Kermit sipping his tea, and just enjoying this thing. But there is this moment where I've had this happen to me multiple times. When I was in basic training in the army, I brought a Bible with me. We were allowed to just put our Bible out on the shelf. But if you've ever been in the army, being a clone is the number one skill. And so I put my Bible away in my little box. I didn't need it on the shelf. There's some kind of freedom of religion thing. But I don't need that freedom of religion. I put it away. But I'd be reading my Bible and guys would come in and try to mock me or whatever. And my friends would yell at them. I never defended myself. I was an honest guy who was loyal to my friends, who worked hard, and my friends defended my faith because they understood that my faith made me who I was. When you follow Jesus, you don't find yourself arguing for Jesus. You find yourself answering questions about your life. Because I promise half your friends, their marriage is going to get to the brink. And they're going to come to you and say, what on earth do you do? And if you follow Jesus, you have scriptures that you can share with them and say, I don't know if this will help, but it helps me. You'll have half your friends will struggle in their relationship with their parents or in their relationship with their children. And they'll come to you and say, look, your kids seem to turn out What's going on? And you can say, well, I've got this Bible, and I do what it says. Here's what might help you. There's this guy named Jesus who you can pray to. It's not a theology. It's not a doctrine. It's being able to answer when you're asked. The question, though, and this is the convicting part, is, is anybody asking you? See, the... I think the reason we like knocking on doors and saying, do you think you're going to hell today? No, that's the wrong question. Uh, if you're going to die tonight, where will you go? <laughs> Maybe that's why I was so bad at it. <laughs> Goodness sakes. <laughs> I am seriously the worst evangelist in the world. But when, uh, when we knock on a door and we ask a question like that, or when I'm talking about abstract concepts... I can free myself from actually having to live for Jesus. I can be a jerk. I can be a gossip. I can love evil and chase after drama and, and like conflict and chaos and confusion if I make Jesus a concept and you follow this concept. But what Jesus calls us to do is actually live this life and so I live a life among people 
where people know there's something different. And the thing is, it makes everything harder. This passage of Scripture comes in between like a, a, this section before it and this section after it that's all about living through suffering. It's all about follow Jesus. It's going to be really difficult. And in the middle of this, it says, in your difficulty, people will want to know about Jesus and you'll be able to tell them in a courteous, graceful, good way and they will come to know the God who is carrying you through these difficulties. The call of God isn't to an abstract concept. The call of God is to a life that's really well lived. Not easily lived, well lived. So that the people around you are blessed because of you. Just by knowing you and being in relationship with you, their life is better. And when their life is better, they want to know why their life is better, and they ask you. They're not going to ask you about your concepts. Nobody has posted on social media, hey, could someone share their opinion about the candidates so I can know which one to vote for? <laughs> they only do that because they want to have a fight in the comments and they want to get lots of notifications when they wake up in the morning, right? Nobody's asking that. Nobody cares. Nobody's changing their mind about opinions. But people are changing their mind because of the way that people live. And people will change their mind about your Savior because of the way that you live. So the call isn't, hey, get better at evangelism or get better at knocking on doors and having an argument and winning the argument. The real call is do the hard work of living with Jesus. Do the hard work of chasing after goodness and snubbing evil of only speaking things that are good and not hurtful, of being gracious and compassionate and loving and kind. Do that hard work, and you'll find yourself making disciples. Just try to make disciples, and you'll find yourself frustrated. Live for Jesus, and you'll make all sorts of disciples. Let's stand and pray, and then we'll worship together. Our God, uh, we come to you with humble hearts, because we generally fail at what it is to be Jesus. If I'm the only Jesus that people ever know, they'll be disappointed. And I would bet most of us could agree to that for ourselves. And so we pray, Lord, that you would lead us to holy living, that you would free us from the bonds of sin, free us from the habitual sin that's got so many of us in chains that's keeping us from living that whole life that your Bible promises. God, free us from that, not just for our sake, and please free us for, it for, from, for our sake, but not just for our sake, but that means we can be a blessing to the people around us so that we can say, this is who I was, and this is the work that Jesus did over the sin in my life, when he gave himself on that cross and they put him in a tomb and he rose from the dead three days later and defeated sin and defeated death and now I live in life with God. May you move in us in that such a way, God, so that we're able to move in the lives of others around us. Give us words when we're asked and give us grace and compassion as we speak. 
In your name we pray. Amen.